0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Autism Stories, where we connect you with amazing people who are helping autistic adults and teens become more successful. I'm your host, Doug Bletcher, the founder of Autism Personal Coach. Museums can be a great place to learn for autistic people, and on this episode of Autism Stories, we talk with Sam Theriault about this and what museums can do to make their environments more accessible for learning. If you would like to be notified about each week's episode of Autism Stories, we suggest you subscribe on your favorite podcast listening platform. We would also appreciate if you could give us a positive rating and review as it will help others to learn about Autism Stories. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation. Sam, thanks so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: I became interested in talking with you when I read about your efforts in supporting autistic people at museums. I wanted to start off with just um, your general interest in museums to begin with. Why did you decide to study museum education at George Washington University?
1: So I guess my interest in museums started before I went to school. When I was in, I was thinking back after thinking about talking to you to the first time that I really felt excited by museums and I realized it was on the eighth grade trip to Washington, DC that my school went on a long time ago. And we were at the air and space museum. And for some reason, at that point, the ruby slippers from the wizard of Oz were at that museum they were renovating the American History Museum. And I ended up sneaking away from my class to go and see this object that I was absolutely obsessed with. And I just remember like feeling just so enthralled by that experience and just feeling awake and alive in DC and the museums. And I really didn't know very much about museums at that point, other than just that they seemed like these really cool places that housed objects that were related to some of my very intense and special interests and i wanted to be in those environments because i felt like maybe this is a place where i could belong so when i was in high school i was really interested in history and anthropology and decided that i would go to school in washington dc for my undergraduate work and only because i wanted to work in a museum and i was like DC, the Smithsonian. I need to be there, and that's um, that's kind of what I did. I went and got a work study at the Air and Space Museum, which I don't work at anymore. And of course, you know, I might mention a couple of museums or places I've worked before, but I don't represent them, and you know, my views are my own. But I started working at the Air and Space Museum, despite not being a science person whatsoever. And I had to learn the physics of how airplanes fly so that I could explain it to other people. And I had never, ever been good at science or math or anything in that STEM realm while I was in school. And just learning with the hands-on objects and holding an airfoil and seeing the wind tunnel and just the way that the science behind how an airplane flies was explained in the museum setting was fascinating to me because I was like, Oh, here I am learning science. So what is different about learning in a museum setting versus learning in an academic setting? And that pushed me to study museum education um, for graduate work.
0: And where does your passion come in supporting autistic people and their inclusion at museums?
1: So I am on the autism spectrum, which I didn't learn until After I had left school when I was in my first job after graduating and as I was sort of new to both the autism world and new to the world of working in the museum field as a professional. I just couldn't separate those two paths of learning from each other and then I ended up, you know, I'm still grateful for this day that I was able to work on the projects at the San Diego Natural History Museum as. of the evaluation team for that project and um, just seeing how that project um, worked for the young adults on the autism spectrum and just being around them in a museum setting really helped me start to understand my autism and understand you know that the autism spectrum is so much broader and deeper than i understood it before i started learning about it which you know i wouldn't have done if i hadn't been identified as on the autism spectrum myself Um, Which I think, you know, that kind of hits at all of our, you know, internalized and cultural ableism, too, is that there are a lot of people who don't understand what autism is. And I think that extends to people in the museum field as well. And that's sort of something I'm realizing lately is I've been so interested in, you know, include autistic people in museums, include us as staff members. And I'm realizing, you know, just in the past few weeks that when I say the word autism or autistic, my museum colleagues have a certain picture in mind of what that looks like in a person, and they don't picture somebody like me who is able to talk with them or to write about these complicated topics in our field. So I think there's some learning that we we can all do there. And I've been in that position before myself, so I I understand that.
0: Now you mentioned a little bit a few minutes ago about um, learning at museums. And it's interesting because I don't always believe that school settings are the best way to learn for a variety of reasons. Uh, and I'm wondering, do you see museums being an important part of, of the learning process for autistic people?
1: I absolutely think that they are a viable alternative to learning in a school setting. You know, if you think about being in school, I and many of my peers and close friends, um, Had a hard time with certain aspects of school. And it wasn't that we didn't want to learn or that we couldn't learn um, or that we weren't interested, but that, you know, sitting in a classroom for a long period of time in an environment that isn't necessarily sensory friendly and, you know, may not be learning about something that you're interested in or the concepts might be very abstract or vague. I think that can be difficult for a lot of people. But when you go into a museum, You know, tenants of museum education involve things like object based learning. So it it makes the learning very concrete. Like I was describing with learning how airplanes fly, we would have an airfoil, which is a cross section of an airplane wing, in our hands that you could use and touch and feel and see. Mm -hmm. And even then, I remember learning, you know, the air going over the top of the wing and the air going underneath the wing. And finally just putting it together one day when I was outside, I was driving in the car or maybe as a passenger and had my hand out the window. And I realized that when my hand was flat, the air just went over it. But when I curved my hand slightly like an airfoil, I felt the air lift it up and move it. And finally I understood, this is how an airplane flies. And now you see, you know, science museums having wind tunnels and things like that, that you can touch and feel. And if you can feel lift happen on your hand, or with a toy airplane, or a paper airplane, you can understand how an airplane flies, or you can make that leap. Um, If you can feel it and see it and touch it, you can start to understand it. So I think that's part of um, ways that autistic people might learn better in museums. And those are ways that people who aren't autistic too can learn better in museums. It's sort of the, the universal design aspect there. There are other conversations about informal learning that involve like project-based learning. So, for example, like you could imagine a community museum where you know an autistic student, let's say like a high schooler, might come in and be at the museum instead of in a classroom and they are helping to put an exhibition together and they do they might have to do math while they help to like build and construct pieces of a gallery they might have to learn you know how to understand and interpret a painting and decide which one is good to put there. Um, they might learn budgeting like there are all these different skills that could come out of that kind of concrete learning that you could see happen at a museum um, that I think we could take advantage of and that's just you know that's a rough example but but there are people who are thinking about that with much more expertise than I am. And I think that's something that's worth thinking about how we can move our learning out of the classroom and into our communities.
0: Yeah. I think the different modalities of learning is, is so important that the museum can bring to people. I, I often talk on the, the, uh, this autism stories podcast, um, how it's important. It's so important about developing community. And I was wondering how do you see museums as an option to foster this community, I mean, maybe even specifically for autistic people? I
1: just listened to your episode with um, Haley Moss, I believe, and you talked about the film Crip Camp on Netflix and how yeah. how special and transformative that community instance was. And when I watched that film, I realized that it reminded me of that program in san diego that brought all of these young adults together on the autism spectrum to work on a common goal and we saw that over time the young adults connected with each other and they were able to learn from each other and uplift each other and you would see you know an, an adult a non-autistic adult asking one of the young adults a question and see that person pause before answering and another different young young adult with autism would say well well they're thinking hold on just a second like let them think and then they'll respond to you and that person would then respond so you could see that they were taking care of each other and sticking up for each other they were advocating for each other because there was just this default state of acceptance they were with people who were similar but different to them you know like we all say there's if you know one person with autism you know one person with Mm -hmm. autism so I think like giving like museums have a special thing which is space right you have this kind of third space like a library where you have a public forum and you have rooms and places to meet and gather and projects to do and a vested interest in developing community so that the community will continue to support the museum and perpetuate its existence so why not open the museum space to to meet up groups for instance or to summer Mm -hmm. camps and programs like that that are focused on people who are neurodivergent whether that be autism adhd you know all sorts of stuff I think we, we have the power to open doors to just giving that space for community to flourish and develop and get together and meet each other. And it sounds a little hippy dippy, but I, I really would love to see community form like that, like it did on in that film Crip Camp and at Camp Jeanette. Like, I'd love to see more instances like that in museums.
0: Well, I think we need more hippy dippy. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. <laughs> and- I've seen I've seen more museums try to make things more sensory supportive for autistic people which is great but I'm also not sure there are many museums that are maybe looking beyond that. What are some additional measures that museums could take to make museum experiences better for autistic people?
1: Yeah, I I absolutely agree that those those sensory experiences are important. And I, I just want to say that I think, you know, every, every museum with um, autistic family or group of families in their community that they're trying to serve, you know, you have to wonder if those families feel like they can't. How am I going to say this? Um, sometimes in the museum world, visitors and community groups are hesitant to give any sort of critical feedback to a museum because they worry that if they criticize something, the museum will take that thing away. So for example, if an autism family says, hey, I love your access hours, but I'd like to see more. I'd like to see more from the museum. There's a worry that the museum might respond by removing those access hours. So I just want to say that's not what we want. We love access hours. We want those to be there. Um, accessibility consul- consultant um, Sina Barham says that accessibility is making sure folks can open the door and inclusion is inviting people to come inside and enjoy what you have to offer. So to me, I see that that access, the sensory experiences, being able to touch things, having exhibits that are hands-on so that there's a physical and cognitive access. Like you can get in the space, you can be in the environment and be relatively okay. That is a baseline to me. And then on top of that, you can move from access to inclusion. So then you can start providing opportunities to socialize. That includes um, opportunities for families, for friends, for groups, for field trips, you know, summer camps and that, co- that kind of community building that we were talking about with reference to Crip And then on top of that, I see, I hope for museums to make more pathways to collaborate with autistic people and opportunities for us to contribute to museums so that we are the ones helping the museum to communicate with autistic audiences. So there is collaboration. So it's nothing about us without us, that whole, Idea. I read an article a couple weeks ago in a journal. The author was Catherine Crompton, and the article was called Autistic Peer to Peer Information Transfer is Highly Effective. And it talked about how um, autistic people share information with other autistic people as well as non autistic people did with other non autistic people. But in mixed groups of people who are autistic and non autistic people, less information was shared, like a bad game of telephone. So I have to wonder if museums full of non-autistic people are trying to communicate with autistic people. You know, there's there's a dearth of information
0: Mm -hmm. that's
1: going to happen there. So in an ideal world and in an ethical world, if we're talking about the kinds of diversity and inclusion initiatives that most museums say that they are trying to do, then that would involve hiring autistic staff members and including us in these conversations about what the museum can do for their autistic communities.
0: Throughout our pandemic, it seems like there's a lot more museums that have started providing virtual tours. How important do you think that has been to disabled people to experience museums not just now, but moving forward as our society is looking to slowly move back as much to much as possible to pre-pandemic conditions?
1: So I have to say, I, I'm not 100% sure I'm the best person to answer this question. Just because I personally haven't done any virtual museum tours, which... I guess sounds a little bit sacrilege um but i i just personally like my eyes just glaze over when i try to do virtual tours and that kind of thing i'm just like personally i'm just not super interested in them Mm -hmm. and so i also haven't been very plugged into that conversation but there are a couple of threads that i think are important and the first is that when it comes to any sort of programming coming from a museum or a professional organization in our field is that whether it's visitor focused or professional focused, if you are creating virtual programming, you must build accessibility components into it from the beginning. If you are leading a professional development webinar, you need to have captioning, live Mm -hmm. captioning. Mm -hmm. You need to have a sign interpreter, you know, this kind of different stuff here that you maybe don't think about in your daily tours and programming. Where there are other accessibility devices that are at your fingertips at the museum or you might have a specific sign tour you know once or twice a week um that kind of thing but i have seen um a fair amount of professional organizations in particular that are not thinking about accessibility when it comes to their online engagement and that is frustrating to me because i feel like our professional organizations should be setting an example for their museums. That's that's a whole rant that I have. But again, I, I think that there are other people in our field who can speak on that a little bit more than I can, who are more affected by those situations. And I will say, um, I was talking with my partner the other day, because I noticed, I was kind of peeking over his phone, and I noticed that he was looking through gal- some gallery tour, I think it was National Gallery, on Instagram. And on Instagram stories, they were having a little virtual tour with extra information written on it and that kind of stuff and i was like what are you doing How, what are you looking at <laughs> he's like oh i'm doing this museum tour and i was like oh and you didn't think to talk about this with me like not share your thoughts on it and he was just like well if if they did it in this style and actually gave this kind of like short burst of information and it mm. were written out like this, and you could go at your own pace without having to worry about, you know, moving and letting somebody else have a turn with this painting and not worrying about people shuffling behind you and all this stuff, then maybe I would be more interested in doing this in person. So there are some sort of physical barriers that I think virtual tours and virtual or digital exhibits can help with, people who are not able to get to the museum, for people who. You know, even during the sensory hour, the museum might still be too much. There are ways to get that information and those experiences to people who can't or don't want to go to museums. But again, it's only if they're interested and it's only if that information is accessible.
0: It's, it's funny you mention that because it makes me think back now to, I was in um, Newport, Rhode Island. And in Newport, they have all these like, old homes and mansions Mm -hmm. and i went into this one mansion and as soon as you walk in they give you a pair of headphones and you can like Mm -hmm. listen to a tour guide as you walk through the entire um you know the entire tour from room to room and i just Mm -hmm. remember thinking oh this is so nice it's nice and quiet I'm, i'm learning and i could go at my own pace
1: Right, absolutely. And I've been to a couple of um, the mansions in Newport, and they're beautiful and interesting, um, and I'm glad that memory stands out to you as as something uh, that you liked.
0: Yeah. Now, you used to work for a company that was hired to conduct uh, research for a pilot study published in the Journal of Museum Education relating to the San Diego Natural History Museum, in which... 10 autistic people worked at the museum to create social stories, which, which sounds fantastic because these stories can create expectations, which I think are so important, especially when you're going somewhere new. What were the positive results you, um, you observed from this project?
1: I think one of the most positive results we saw was that the educators who worked on this project with the autistic young adults ended up learning more about autism and were able to think about their work in new ways. So I remember one of the educators saying that, um, you know, their idea of the project was that they wanted it to be co-creative so that it wasn't the staff, the museum staff guiding it, but the young adults guiding it themselves. Um, So they were driving the process. So it's, it's to me, this is an example of, um, what co-creation and collaboration look like in a museum for a particularly marginalized community. So even though young adults with autism weren't the people who came up with the idea for the project, which I think is something that would be beneficial in the future is to start with the audience even earlier in the process, um, is that the Young adults were the ones who, so they brought, the museum brought these young adults on the spectrum in to create social stories for museums in their community so that other people could access those social stories as pre-visit tools for going to a museum later on. So the young adults created resources for autistic people in their community. So this is a classic example of nothing about us without us. So it wasn't all these museums got together and said, let's make a social story for our museum so that autistic people coming in can have a sense of what to expect while they're here. It was a museum saying, let's get autistic people in here, take them to these museums, give them the opportunity to develop their observational skills, to develop their skills collaborating with their peers to help them develop communication skills so that they can share their observations and experiences in these documents with other autistic people in their community. Let's give them the opportunity to do a project that will serve their community and make them feel like their contributions are valid and meaningful. And throughout that process, those young adults connected with each other, they learned more about themselves, they developed the language to advocate for themselves and for their needs. They made friendships that last I heard there are a couple of them who are still friends, you know, years after the projects ended, which is beautiful. Um, And I'm sure as you know, I think this is a big thing for museums too, is that autistic people, especially, young adults and adults who once you age out of support from school are an incredibly isolated community um, Mm -hmm. and not isolated as a community, but isolated individually from their communities. So just creating those opportunities to socialize and to connect. And then while that is happening for the museum to learn more about autistic people so that they can improve their exhibits and their programmings and just their personal approach to inclusion was this really awesome reciprocity that developed from this
0: project. Absolutely. And have you heard of more museums that are taking the lead in trying to develop projects like or studies like this?
1: So um, I was actually just thinking about, I haven't heard of a specific project exactly like this um, and I'm not, really in touch with these folks anymore. But there is a great program out of New York that might be worth looking into if you're interested or for anybody who's in that area. It's called Supporting Transitions, Cultural Connections for Adults with Autism. And the project um, seeks to increase opportunities at cultural organizations like museums for adults on the spectrum. Um, To my understanding, they do different kinds of internship and job placements and different programming. Um, with the autism community um, to provide resources and support for working. Um, So that's an example of um, one community in particular doing that. I believe it's a network of different museums in that area that work together on this project. Um, I don't know too much about it, but it's one that I hear referenced a lot and um, anybody who's interested in museums in that area should look into
0: it. I've met many autistic people that not only just visit museums, but would also like to work in them. What would your advice be to an autistic person that does want to pursue, pursue museum education?
1: So a couple of different things. The first is that there are so many different kinds of jobs in museums. Uh, there is museum education. There's um, working with objects and doing things like curating or being a registrar database management. Uh, There's all kinds of different jobs. Um, If you have a skill and you like museums, like you can go the skill route and look in that way. You maybe you have a particular interest, like maybe a certain aspect of history, or maybe you really like animals. So you could work at a specific history museum or do and sort of build your skill set around that. The sort of the thing right now is that, of course, with the pandemic, The museum field is in a bit of crisis Um, in that sense. We've had a lot of layoffs, um, especially for front of house workers who are the people that you might see on the museum floor doing interactions with people. Um, Those are especially educators in particular. And a lot of people who were in those positions are Black and people of color. They are people who are neurodivergent. Um, So it's sort of hitting marginalized groups disproportionately. So it's sort of difficult to advocate and say, come join the museum field. (laughs) I can't can't guarantee job security for anybody. But for those who are interested in museum education specifically, I would say to one, develop your skills um, in multiple areas so that if you encounter this job insecurity, you have transferable skills the second would pick would be to spend time now before you even get into school or in a museum doing the work of understanding anti-racism as it applies to the museum field because that is a huge and important conversation that the museum field is tackling right now and it's long overdue and there's a long way to go um, but just educating yourself on those issues right now in terms of um, like doing a search for terms like museums are not neutral and decolonize the museums are good places to start. And then the last piece of advice I would give is one that I heard from an author and speaker in the museum field named Elaine Gurian. Um, She came to one of our classes in school once and talked about her experience and gave us advice. And um, I really, I almost regret not taking this advice sooner. And that was to Really, just hone in on what your values are and to define them.
0: I think that that's great advice. And
1: cut off. I do not disturb. On, but I got a phone call anyway. Um, not sure if you can hear me. I can hear you. Okay, sorry. Um, so this author and speaker Elaine Gurian came to our class and gave us the advice that if you are going to be entering the museum field to really hone in on your values and to write them down, to draw your line in the sand before you get into the field, because there are issues of museums, um, for instance, saying that they are diverse or inclusive, but then you know not treating their workers right and um, engaging in racist or homophobic policies and actions Um, and you need to decide ahead of time if that's something that you're going to put up with or if it's something that you're going to walk away from and to help you with that i would absolutely suggest having a good support system whether that be from some kind of supported employment group um, if you have access to resources like that family members friends um, people in informal professional networks that you find In person or online um, and just making sure that you know you have some outside voices to talk to um, because it can be a very political field I would say and that includes you know the social politics of being in an office environment which for me I've I've found very difficult to navigate in the past Um, so having outside voices has helped with that a lot too.
0: Well, Sam, I I really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks so much for joining us and giving me the opportunity to learn from you today.
1: Of course. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Thank you to everyone for listening, and thanks so much to Sam for the great conversation. When you're autistic, the world isn't designed with your unique traits in mind, and everyday demands can feel insurmountable. At Autism Personal Coach, we provide autistic adults and teens hard-to-find support to live self-sufficient and purpose-driven lives through our private coaching and community events. We are offering new clients two 30-minute coaching sessions at no cost. This is coaching that anyone can afford, so don't wait to reach out to us and click on the link provided in the podcast description for this episode. On next week's episode of Autism Stories, we will talk with Becky Parker, about the benefits of dance to autistic people. Talk to you then.